appeal to a romantic young girl. Luckily, her father got wind of it in time. He took her back to America in haste. I heard of her marriage some years later, but I know nothing of her husband. Hmm, I said. The Honourable Rupert Carrington is no beauty by all accounts. He had pretty well run through his own money on the turf, and I should imagine old man Halliday's dollars came along in the nick of time. I should say that for a good-looking, well-mannered, utterly unscrupulous young scoundrel, it would be hard to find his mate. Ah, the poor little lady. Elle n'est pas bien tombée. I fancy he made it pretty obvious at once that it was her money and not she that attracted him. I believe they drifted apart almost at once. I have heard rumours lately that there was to be a definite legal separation. Well, old man Halliday is no fool. He would tie up her money pretty tight. As I dare say. Anyway, I know as a fact that the Honourable Rupert is said to be extremely hard up. Uh Uh-huh. I wonder. Oh, you wonder what? My good friend, do not jump down my throat like that. You are interested, I see. Suppose you accompany me to see Mr. Halliday. There is a taxi stand at the corner. A few minutes sufficed to whirl us to the superb house in Park Lane rented by the American magnet. We were shown into the library, and almost immediately we were joined by a large, stout man with piercing eyes and an aggressive chin. Monsieur Poirot, said Mr. Halliday. I guess I don't need to tell you what I want you for. You've read the papers, and I'm never one to let the grass grow under my feet. I happened to hear you were in London, and I remembered the good work you did over those bonds. and never forget a name. I have got the pick of Scotland Yard, but I'll have my own man as well. Money no object. All the dollars were made for my little girl, and now she's gone. I'll spend my last cent to catch the damn scoundrel that did it. See? So it's up to you to deliver the goods. Poirot bowed. I accept, monsieur, or the more willingly that I saw your daughter in Paris several times. And now I will ask you to tell me the circumstances of her journey to Plymouth and any other details that seem to you to bear upon the case. Well, to begin with, responded Halliday, She wasn't going to Plymouth. She was going to join a house party at Avonmead Court, the Duchess of Swansea's place. She left London by the 12.14 from Paddington, arriving at Bristol, where she had to change, at 2.50. The principal Plymouth expresses, of course, run via Westbury and do not go near Bristol at all. The 12.14 does a non-stop run to Bristol, afterwards stopping in Weston, Taunton, Exeter, and Newton Abbott. My daughter travelled alone in her carriage, which was reserved as far as Bristol, her maid being in a third-class carriage in the next coach. Poirot nodded, and Mr. Halliday went on. The party at Avonmead Court was to be a very gay one, with several balls, and in consequence my daughter had with her nearly all her jewels, amounting in value perhaps to about a hundred thousand dollars. A moment, interrupted Poirot. Who had charge of the jewels, your daughter or the maid? My daughter always took charge of them herself, carrying them in a small blue Morocco case. Continue, monsieur. At Bristol, the maid, Jane Mason, collected her mistress's dressing bag and wraps, which were with her, and came to the door of Flossie's compartment. To her intense surprise, my daughter told her that she was not getting out of Bristol, but was going on farther. She directed Mason to get out the luggage and put it in the cloakroom. She could have tea in the refreshment room, but she was to wait at the station for her mistress, who would return to Bristol by an up-train in the course of the afternoon. The maid, although very much astonished, did as she was told. 
She put the luggage in the cloakroom and had some tea. But up-train after up-train came in, and her mistress did not appear. After the arrival of the last train, she left the luggage where it was and went to a hotel near the station for the night. This morning she read of the tragedy and returned to town by the first available train. Is there nothing to account for your daughter's sudden change of plan? Well, there is this. According to Jane Mason at Bristol, Flossie was no longer alone in her carriage. There was a man in it who stood looking out of the farther window so that she could not see his face. The train was a corridor one, of course. Yes. Which side was the corridor? On the platform side. My daughter was standing in the corridor as she talked to Mason. And there is no doubt in your mind? Oh, excuse me. He got up and carefully straightened the inkstand, which was a little askew.